Coming up today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, it's been busy at Queen's Park. Sabrina Nanjani of the Queen's Park Observer gets us up to speed. We'll get an employment lawyer's view of the controversy over a dress code for a transgender teacher at the Halton Public School Board, the teacher who was wearing very large prosthetic breasts. Howard Levitt of Levitt Shake Employment Law weighs in. And have we reached maximum saturation for music streaming? The numbers might surprise you. Alan Cross of the Ongoing History of New Music says it's likely. I'm Shona Thompson filling in on the Bill Kelly podcast, which starts right now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It was a very busy day at Queen's Park with the masking guidance, the fall economic statement, and the repeal of Bill 28, the controversial use of the notwithstanding clause. Ontario is projecting in its economic statement improving deficits over the next couple of years. We get more on that from Global's Matt Carty. The province's fall economic outlook forecasts a deficit of $12.9 billion this fiscal year, $8.1 billion the following year, and just $700 million in 2024-25. The mini-budget released today by Ontario Finance Minister Peter Bethlen falvey contains changes to allow ODSP recipients to keep more of their earnings. This measure would encourage people with a disability who want to increase their work hours to do so and promote more participation in the workforce while not penalizing them for doing so. The province is also investing $40 million in skilled training and increasing the number of small businesses that could benefit from the small business tax rate. It is also doubling payments to low-income seniors. Matt Carty, Global News. So we have lots of ground to cover with Sabrina Nanji, who's the founder of the Queen's Park Observer, and she joins us on the line now. Good morning. Hi, Shona. Happy to be here. Uh, You know, it seems like we should be at the end of the week talking about what happened at Queen's Park uh, instead of it only being Tuesday. They got a lot of work done. Yeah, it's only Tuesday. Uh, Never a dull moment at Queen's Park. They're definitely keeping us busy. Like you said, we've got the mini budget, uh, you know, new uh, masking recommendations. And this is still happening against the backdrop of, you know, tough negotiations with education workers. So definitely, you know, it's it's never a dull moment at Queen's Park. (laughs) That's for sure. So let's start with a fall economic statement. The premier started with a bit of a dessert, a Sunday on a Sunday, if you will, with the promise uh, that the gas tax cut is going to be extended for a year. That's easy to get everybody on board with. Yeah, it's not um, unusual for governments of all political stripes to kind of tease one of the good news nuggets that they want to, you know, make headlines uh, and, and get people excited about it. And clearly that was the the, the gas tax cut. Uh, you know, they're shaving 5.7 cents off uh, every liter uh, for, for another year. So that will be extended uh, again until December 31st. And that really helps motorists. I mean, you know, I guess every little bit helps these days, you know, sky high inflation. We're all feeling the pinch at the grocery store uh, and you know the, the government says this will save the average person around 200 bucks a year uh, and, and I think a little bit goes a long way but again you know the Ford government is kind of showing its its cards here politically a little bit they relied a lot on um, the GTA uh, you know voters from outside downtown Toronto to kind of win them the second majority mandate and so that's why we're kind of seeing a lot of motorist friendly uh, you know nuggets coming out and, and being highlighted again so th- there were a few other surprises too you know i think now especially uh after reporting a a 2.1 billion dollar surplus last last fiscal year which was a bit of a surprise we're now back in in the red ink uh and and the government is projecting a 13 billion dollar deficit this time around and so as i mentioned you know it it 
kind of seems like they're putting out these minor goodies. You you also talked about uh, ODSP disability support payments going up, but this is happening when the province is also in negotiations with, you know, a lot of public sector workers, including teachers, education workers, nurses are coming up too. And I think the Ford government is kind of already signaling to them that they're going to be reining in the, the belt. Uh, they're, they're not willing to budge a little bit more because there really wasn't much else new in, in the mini budget. I think uh, it's a bit of a warning, you know, for, for public sector workers not to maybe expect uh, a huge wa- uh, raise coming down the line. Well, it's a that's a tough sell when you go from, you know, quite a deficit into a bit of a surplus. That's going to be a really tough sell for those unions. Yeah, I mean, we kind of saw things escalate to unprecedented levels, uh, you know, in, in recent weeks with QP and the Ford government having to actually kill that Bill 28, you know, the bill that uh, imposed a contract, banned the the right to strike for the lowest paid education workers, and used the notwithstanding clause, you know, overriding the charter to do it. We saw unions push back, and then we saw Ford kind of, uh, you know, put down that that big gun, and, and the bill was actually killed yesterday, kind of in the middle of all of this, um, you know, all of this excitement at Queens Park, and so they they passed it right away. They saw unanimous consent as the premier promised to do, but that also is kind of a bit of a warning shot to to unions, you know. Um, because interestingly enough, QP workers are still in a legal strike position now. It's hard to, to see where they'll go from here if a deal can be hammered out at the table. Uh, but I, I think that it's also, you know, making things a little awkward at the bargaining table because teachers are are currently in the middle of their negotiations. Uh, I, I think certainly, you know, the repeal of Bill 28 was, um, you know, as Ford put it, a massive olive branch. But as to whether things are moving at the bargaining table, I think, you know, things might get a little more rocky before there is any solution there. Well, you know, and you're talking about um, all of the contract negotiations. The nurses would be part of that as well. I was also hoping to see a little bit more help for health care because there is that crisis in Children's Hospital. Yesterday started with the chief medical officer of health, Dr. Kieran Moore, saying he's strongly recommending masking. But we have a crisis right now in Children's Hospitals. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And that is, you know, what a lot of critics are, are saying right off the bat, that there was no new money for healthcare, uh, you know, in this fiscal update. And this is coming against the backdrop of Dr. Moore, you know, recommending, you know, falling short of actually mandating, but, but recommending uh, masking indoors. Uh, as we are seeing pediatric ICUs just completely overwhelmed across the province. And so I think, you know, to at least from an optics perspective, at the very least, uh, you know, this was kind of a, a, a miss for the Ford government, absolutely, because we've had, uh, you know, this healthcare staffing crisis for months. Dr. Moore, you know, had predicted that we would have an influx of COVID transmissions, flu transmissions, uh, and that it would be, you know, a tough fall and winter. And he basically said yesterday that that was already materialized. And so, uh, you know, that that I think the Ford government, it, it's not necessarily about just throwing money at the problem. I don't think anyone is asking them to do that. But as the NDP's finance critic, Catherine Fife said, you know, she had hoped to see that surplus uh, instead of going to pay down the provincial debt to go towards, you know, uh, health care staff, uh, you know, who have been subject to a one percent wage increase thanks to another controversial piece of legislation, Bill 124, uh, and, and, you know, to help hospitals 
hospitals, uh, you know, not only fund more beds, but to staff those beds. And so I think, you know, uh, it, it's not too late, of course, for the Ford government to, you know, p- allocate some of their contingency funds and, and put that up. But they really missed a big opportunity to do that yesterday in the mini budget. We're speaking with Sabrina Nanji of the Queen's Park Observer about everything that happened yesterday. I'm hoping we can get it all in. One of the things that you touched on was the rollback of Bill 28. That was the controversial use of the notwithstanding clause, as well as, um, you know, imposing a contract on uh, education support workers in this province. Um, And that now has been rolled back. I mean, huge criticism there. Nobody had ever even done this before. Um, Mike Harris didn't even try some of these measures. Yeah, completely unprecedented. for Ford. And I, I think, you know, he did repeal it. He did kind of back down a little bit. Uh, I think once he realized, you know, the pushback that he was getting, especially from unions, I mean, for organized labor, if if any government is willing to, um, you know, just impose a contract, what is the point of a union? So really, you know, labor saw this as, as a huge existential threat to them. They were uniting. Um, you know, the Ford government in particular worked very hard to win over uh, union support. We might not you know necessarily think of conservatives as being the party of labor and of course you know these were private sector construction building trades unions that supported the the pcs in the campaign but with one stroke of a pen the ford government completely undid that with that bill 28 and the, the use of that notwithstanding clause so i think you know ford kind of saw the writing on the wall there was these uh, you know um rumors of a general strike which would have Uh, made a significant impact in the province, you know, shutting down parts of the economy for some time. And so, you know, Ford, obviously, I think maybe realized uh, what a big, you know, what a big weapon that was uh, that he he put on the table. I I do think that, you know, he really did uh, want to keep kids in class as everybody did. But, you know, using the notwithstanding clause in labor negotiations was uh, just, uh, you know, it, it just kind of escalated things to just an unbelievable level. And so I do think that this has maybe cooled things off, but uh, the labor uh, folks in labor that I've been talking to say the genie is really out of the bottle here. And, um, you know, they're kind of talking about whether or not we should look at the notwithstanding clause, uh, you know, as it even being a, a necessary tool, because we have seen, you know, increased use in Quebec and in Ontario, and for some unpopular, you know, moves, uh, generally, but, uh, you know, I, I think that what the provinces are doing are, are well within their powers. And so this is kind of, you know, opened uh, a whole Pandora's box of, you know, constitutional debate about the system. You know, you, when we talk about the rollback of, of Bill 28 and the attempt at using the notwithstanding clause against uh, a labor organization during contract talks, um, I'm wondering if anybody is doing a rolling list of the number of things that Doug Ford has tried that have had to be walked back. Because I'm thinking about those license plates. That was a disaster. Uh, the having Trying to have the OPP enforce the stay-at-home order and this. And I'm sure that there are other things he's had to walk back that I just can't think of at this moment. Yeah, one that that just jumps out right at me is, uh, you know, the during COVID, the the closure of playgrounds and then kind of the backtracking on, on that. Uh, I think you know Ford has shown, for better or worse, that when he makes you know unpopular decisions, that he will pivot when it comes to public pushback, and that can you know work in your favor and work against your favor. It, it goes both ways politically because you can kind of seem like you know a flip flopper. It becomes a question of credibility of you know how 
can really anyone trust your word? Uh, but it also can show that you are willing to listen to the public. So I, I, th I think that uh, we might be in for some more surprises from from a premier like like Doug Ford, uh, who especially has a majority and does have, you know, kind of carte blanche to do whatever he wants with with these 83 seats that he got. So I think, you know, the next four years, um, buckle up. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Oh, another car reference. I get it. <laughs> We're speaking with Sabrina Nanji of the Queen's Park Observer. It was a very busy day at Queen's Park, perhaps an unusually busy day at Queen's Park. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The news about a dress code and a transgender teacher in Oakville has made international news. I think a lot of people are trying to understand the story and they're being challenged by it. Here's Tina Trajani of Global News. It's important to recognize the impact dress code policies can have on members of the transgender community. That from a report by the Halton District School Board, which was asked to consider a system-wide dress code after photos of Kayla Lemieux garnered more and more attention. There have been petitions and protests calling for her removal from the classroom and for her to wear something, quote, less provocative and more appropriate to school. The report goes on to say it's important for employers to make allowances to ensure these employees can express themselves according to their lived gender. And it concludes by saying that if an employer wants to foster a culture of professionalism, respect, equity, and inclusion, a truly reasonable and non-discriminatory dress code or grooming standards would most likely fail to yield the intended results. The board also says it's prohibited from making any changes right now because there's no new collective agreement in place with its teachers. Under the Labor Relations Act, it can't alter working conditions during negotiations. Tina Trajani, Global News. Well, we're all trying to understand a lot of this, and, and Tina's report brings up a lot of very important issues. Uh, first off, you know, is this going to go to a human rights code case? I mean, is that going to be tried out there? You know, there are so many different moving parts to this. Um, we're hoping to connect with Howard Levitt of Levitt Shake Employment Law to get his expert advice on on to help us understand all of this a little bit better. And, you know, this is one of the issues that I've really been trying hard to understand and to wrap my mind around. I mean, we're faced with a situation where the law is going to have to apply to a social issue. And as I said, many of us may not fully comprehend it. I cannot imagine the hell it must be for somebody who feels that their identity is one thing and to wake up day after day in a body that doesn't respond to that, that doesn't match that up. I can't imagine what that is like. And I really want to try and understand and uh, be open about uh, trying to um, understand what they're going through. But this situation, I think, has pushed the boundaries. And maybe that's part of what's going on here as an act of activism. Um, this particular teacher is taking it to an extreme so that we have to deal with it. Apparently, we have uh, been able to connect with Howard Levitt of Levitt Shake Employment Law. Good morning and thank you for your time. Good morning and thank you for having me. Um, you know, I think a lot of people are really trying to understand this issue. And again, as I said earlier, it might be a situation where the law is going to have to apply to a social issue that we don't fully comprehend yet. Well, I think it's actually pretty simple. You can't come into work, any work, wearing dirty jeans, bare feet, and disheveled. You can't come into work with your breasts hanging out. You can't, you know, and this is no different. It's outrageous what the school board has done here. It's based, it's not based on the law. It's based on some caricature of the law. You're entitled, yeah, yes, you have to recognize gender identity, which 
but you also have a right as an employer to require people dress in an asexual manner. Unless, of course, you're working at Hooters, where actually an exception is made. Is that, is that a legal exception? That's a legal exception, yes. Because the debate has always been, in terms of dress code issues, let's say in a bar situation or maybe a receptionist, some employers have asked employees to dress in a way that's, and you see them in bars, very scantily dressed. And there have been human rights complaints. The Human Rights Commission says, no, you can't force a woman, it's always a woman, to dress in a revealing, sexualized way. But an exception is made for Hooters and specifically or restaurants like that because large-breastedness is the very, very function of that restaurant. That is what they advertise. So that's what's called in the human rights law bona fide occupation requirement. That's been the debate so far. It's been the other way around from this one where someone can say, I demand the right to dress in a grotesquely caricaturized, sexualized way. And the employer says there's nothing they can do. But of course, there's something they can do. But they can say dress properly. Don't don't be so revealing. Don't be so ridiculous. Dress in a professional manner. And every employer has the right to require teachers or anyone else to dress in a professional manner. And this is not that. And for them to hide behind human rights grounds is is just ludicrous legally. The other thing they say, which is also ludicrous legally, is, oh, well, we've got a contract coming up and therefore there's a a freeze on terms and conditions of employment. One of those terms and conditions of employment is management rights. And management has the right, continued right, to require people to be appropriate, conduct themselves appropriately, dress appropriately. So it's not a change of a term of employment. Part of me has been wondering if that wasn't part of the motivation here um, for this uh, this woman to be um, sporting these very large and they're very, very large prosthetic breasts that frankly appear to have erect nipples in a class that is teen boys. And if part of the motivation was to say, here, you're going to have to deal with this. For sure. Look, she's a provocateur. There's no... She or he, I'm not sure we're talking about, uh, or they as a provocateur. And there's no question about that. They're t- trying to poke it to the school board, and they've got a, and she, they've got away with it. Well, it makes me wonder. Like I was wondering earlier, if if Halton's board was sort of in a damned if they do, damned if they don't situation. But what I'm hearing from you is they've put themselves in that situation by not doing anything. Correct, and they could get themselves out of that situation immediately by ordering this person to dress in a way that is comely and appropriate and and uh, suitable business attire and suitable dis- business comportment. Every employer has the right to require that. And there's no question about that. And the fact, and they're mixing up, they're conflating the issue of gender identity with appropriate workplace attire. Well, I'm wondering why we haven't heard more from uh, parents who may have uh, uh, boys or girls in the shop class, uh, and and they don't want them to be at the center of this political football. I think that's how it started, and now parents are cowed because they think, based on what they've heard from the school board, that they are complying with the law, and no one wants to be seen to be anti-LBGTQ, perhaps, and therefore, they're keeping their mouths shut because they're frightened and cowed and think they have no choice to think the think improperly and correctly and accurately that the school board is complying with the law. And they don't want to be seen to be politically incorrect. 
and not sufficiently woke. And that's probably why parents are being quiet right now, because parents got this start at the beginning by being outraged. But now the school board has suggested that somehow this is legally compliant when it is not. So what I'm hearing you say is that the dress code for teachers that already exists should be applied in this situation, not that the dress code should be amended because of this situation. Well, perhaps if they require male teachers to dress in a male way and female teachers dress in a female way, there has to be some um, flexibility in that regard because of people having different gender identities and people being trans, for example, in this case. <clears throat> but that's different than saying you could dress provocatively, sexually, and ludicrously. Well, and, you know, the other factor in all of this is that we are talking about um, a shop class and perhaps the maturity level of teen boys in this situation. Yeah, the teen boys are probably loving it. Frank is <laughs> just a hoot, but that's, that's not the issue here. No, it's not. Um, so what do you think is going to happen going forward? Because apparently Halton's board is, is waiting for something to happen that will help them in this situation. Oh, I thought they'd already made a decision. That's what I'd heard. So it's resolved as far as they're concerned. And I'm hoping that um, someone is listening to this podcast and is writing a strong letter of protest and saying, what's the legal support for this ridiculous position you're taking? Because there's it's not the law. There is no legal support for this position. Yeah, I, I don't really think it is resolved at all. Well, I hope not. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Uh, Howard, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Howard Levitt of Levitt Shake Employment Law. We've been talking about the situation in uh, Halton's school board about a teacher who is transgendered, who has been sporting a very large pair of prosthetics breasts in class and what that's going to mean to the dress code. Uh, we'll have to see how that plays out in the days and weeks to come. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Something that might have been overlooked in all of our own worries over inflation and interest rates and fall economic statements is what all of this is doing to the living wage in this province. Joining us is someone who has an answer to that question. Tom Cooper is the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Hi, Tom. How are you? Hey, Shona. Good to talk to you. Always good to talk to you as well. I'm guessing the living wage has been taking a beating. It, it has, but uh, it's, it's actually gone up uh, a fair bit over the last year. As, as you know, the cost of living is, is rising. We've seen housing prices skyrocketing, uh, including for rents, especially for rents. And the cost of food is, is going up as well. Inflation is at a 40-year high. Um, so it's not really a surprise that we've seen living wage rates uh, need to increase. So how is the living wage calculated? Yeah, it's it's really an evidence-based calculation, Shona. It's it reflects what workers need to earn at their job, not only to meet basic needs such as housing and and food, hygiene products, uh, transportation, childcare, that sort of thing. It also provides a very modest opportunity for community participation too, and and doing, you know, doing some fun things once in a while, maybe going out for a family dinner once a month. Um, so the living wage is is different than the minimum wage uh, because the minimum wage is really just a political calculation that governments uh, governments decide uh, that's what employers need to pay as a minimum. But living wage is something that we're encouraging employers to 
to adopt and and pay their employees um, because we think it's it's not only good uh, for the employees to to move out of poverty um, because there's far too many people who are working uh, maybe working multiple jobs but not earning enough at those jobs to to move themselves or their families out of poverty but we think it's good for uh, businesses as well because when living wages are paid we found. Uh, there's more employee retention. There's less turnover. You don't have to put out the costs for for skills training. You know, a, a new employee every couple of months. Uh, so it's good for those businesses too. And plus, it's good for community because when people are earning more money, uh, that's money that's recirculated in, in the local economies, and and that's helping to create uh, economic growth and, and create jobs. So it kind of is a win-win-win. And, and what are the new living wage rates? Because I know that they were just reassessed, given all of the changes that have been happening in things like rent and food prices and everything else. Um, do we know what the, the new living wage rates are in, in this area? Yeah, well, certainly for Hamilton, we've seen the living wage jump up. It was $17.20 last year. Uh, this year, it's gone up to $19.05. And uh, London's living wage is, is a dollar uh, lower than that at uh, $18.05. Uh, it, it's really accounted for that uh, housing costs in Hamilton are have particularly spiked. But elsewhere in the province, we've seen the living wage rise too. Um, so in the Toronto area, for example, it's up, uh, up around $23.15. So living wage calculations are... Uh, change from community to community as, as cost of living changes a little bit in, in each of those communities and and, and uh, life life in those in those cities are, are a little bit different. Um, but it really is what we think uh, should be a minimum that employers should be paying uh, their employees to, to be able to uh, cover their basic needs and, and participate in community life. What do you say to the people who say, yeah, you know what, a living wage going up, hiking prices in order to pay for it, that's only going to make inflation worse? Yeah, well, as we've seen, Shona, inflation is skyrocketing anyway. And, you know, we think um, we think by paying a living wage, uh, it's really just a reflection of, of, of the challenges uh, many employees are, are forced to uh, forced to make, you know, whether to uh, pay the rent, uh, feed the kids, keep the utilities on. So these costs are already going up. Uh, we, we need wages to, to keep up with that um, so that uh, we don't have uh, so many workers falling into deep poverty, as we've seen now. Um, while I have you here, and we only have a couple of minutes left, sadly, um, there was a change to the ODSP regulations contained in the Fall Economic Summit. I wanted to get your take on that. Yeah, and I think that's an important step forward. It's not nearly enough. Uh, social assistance rates have been woefully inadequate for, for far too long, for, for decades, really. And people on the Ontario Disability Support Program have uh, been falling further and further behind. Uh, to say nothing of, of people on general welfare, Ontario Works, who, who are forced to subsist on $733 a month. And that comes nowhere close to meeting the cost of rent in, in any of our communities. But um, I, I think the step forward will will help a little bit. But what we really need to do is, is take, take a good hard look at our income security programs in this province, in this country. As you know, Sean, I've been a big... Um, 
uh, fan of the idea of basic income. And I think we need to move uh, towards that as a society. But uh, I think for now, if we're going to pay people, um, you know, uh, Ontario disability support, let's at least make it a livable rate. So um, how is this going to apply to people who are on ODSP and, and is it is it going to help them? Yeah, well, for some people, uh, it, it, it will uh, assist. There's lots of people on ODSP who are who are uh, working. They may not be able to work full time hours, um, but uh, this will this will ensure that they can get a little bit uh, more in their pockets to cover some of those uh, c- cover some of those basic needs. But as I said, it's it's a s- small step in the right direction, but it's not nearly enough. And we need a wholesale reform of income security programs in this province. Tom, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Tom Cooper is the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. If you're looking for music, you have a ton of options, perhaps too many. And that begs the question, have we reached maximum density for music streaming options? It's a question posed by Alan Cross of the Journal of Musical Things and host of the Ongoing History of New Music. He joins us now. Morning, Alan. Good morning. So, (laughs) how many options are there? Well, put it this way. When you and I were growing up and we went into the biggest record store we'd ever been in, that record store would probably have a hundred thousand titles and we would think wow this is way more music than we could ever possibly enjoy well fast forward to today and the major record labels tell us that a hundred thousand titles are being uploaded to all the streaming music services every day so that means right now the best guess we have is that if you have a Spotify account or an Apple Music account, you have access to a hundred million songs. And that is a lot. In fact, Spotify says that about 20% of all the songs on their platform have never been played once. So that's 20 million songs that no one has ever heard except the creators. You know, that that makes me sad. Well, it is because the barrier to entry is very low. The competition is very high. And it's extraordinarily easy to get lost in the noise. In the old days, you had a record label or a radio station or a video channel or a record store that would sort through all the stuff that was available and only let what they figured to be the best through. Those filters are gone, and now there are, like I said, a hundred million songs to choose from, and all you got to do is pick up your phone to access them. So just putting this into context, that's like going into a Sam the Record Man every single day, and every one of those Sam the Record Mans has an entirely different catalog. Exactly. That's amazing. So here's the problem. First of all, let's look at it from the consumer point of view. Uh, There is too much music for anybody to ingest. Uh, There is too much choice for anybody to settle down on something that they may like. There's too much choice to not skip a song if you don't think that there's something better out there. And what we've been doing is, it's happened slowly, is that instead of saying, okay, this is my band, this is my album, this is my scene, this is my song, 
what we've been doing is selecting songs for our personal playlist or somebody else's playlist, and that has been soundtracking our life, which sounds okay. So we have music to soundtrack our life, but that means we're doing something other than just listening to music. We, we have are quickly, in my opinion, losing the ability to just sink into the music, enjoy it for what it is, and uh, soak as much out of it as we possibly can in terms of emotion. Uh, streaming, I've often said, is like organized noise. It goes in one ear and out the other without any sort of context. Uh, and, and people are getting a little tired of that. So it's, it's like, oh, God, what am I going to listen to today? I'm so overwhelmed by choice. Uh, I don't know. I'm, 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 that's it. I'm out of Spotify. I quit. I quit. I just can't take it anymore. And a lot of people are, are, are actually doing that. Now, if we look at things from the, uh, the streamer side, they're taking in, and this is by their design, they're taking in 100,000 songs a day. That requires server space. Server space requires money and electricity. And then to broadcast, distribute this music back from the servers to the consumers, that requires more electricity and bandwidth. So with the stories of energy prices going up all over the world, especially in Europe, where some of these uh, of the bigger streamers like Spotify and Deezer are located, uh, they're spending an awful lot of money just keeping the lights on. So they're going to have to make a decision at some point. Do we, for example, throttle how much music we take in? Do we go back through our library and find out the songs that haven't been played and do we cull them? removing them from the servers or do we do something else and that's pretty much where we are right now but you know i'm i'm kind of hearing an opportunity here and granted i'm terribly biased on on this particular issue but if there is so much music out there and i i remember when streaming services came on they again announced the death of radio um as they always seem to be willing to do but Radio still survives. But is there uh, an opportunity for radio stations to curate these songs and to get their listeners back who just went to streaming services? Oh, you mean what we've been doing for 100 years? Yes. Yeah, you know that thing. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, You know, one of the things about radio is that we take the the decision-making out of your hands, which is not always a good thing. But if you just want a stream of, sorry, a shouldn't use that word. If you want a, um, a continuous flow of curated songs, songs that have some kind of context, some kind of pedigree, some kind of history, well, radio does that really, 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 really well. Uh, there you know, are, are shortcomings to the way some stations do it, but there's, there are ways around it. I think this is actually an opportunity for old school radio to take back some of this radio is dead talk and show that everybody that it's not true. First of all, it's, it never has been true because radio remains very popular, very powerful, very profitable. But, uh, you know, the, so many people are saying, oh, well, I don't want to wait for my song. I want it right now. So, okay, fine. You don't want to wait for your song. But uh, once you get into that milieu of all these hundreds of millions of songs, uh, you get lost very quickly. We can, we can at least soundtrack your day in a much more efficient and stressless way. Well, you know, and I'm also thinking about that 20% of content that you said that's out there that has never even been heard once, except perhaps 
by the creator and maybe his mom. Um, <laughs> but uh, there's actually, if you have a if you have a Spotify account, you can sign on to a site called Forgotify, <laughs> and Forgotify will play you a stream of songs that have never been streamed before. Uh, that could be a double-edged sword. Yes, because there's there's some really good stuff. But also, there's some really bad stuff. You can see why it was never streamed. Yeah. But I'm wondering, with that, you know, percentage of content that's never really been heard, you know, how do new musicians and bands ever get noticed? Uh, I don't know. It's, it's harder than ever. The signal-to-noise ratio is greater than ever. Competition is greater than ever. And it's not just, you know, in the, in the old days, you would worry about what was happening, say, in Canada, the United States, maybe a little bit of Britain. Right now, you're competing with the whole world, you know, with J-pop and K-pop. And, you know, um, I, I, there's a new thing called C-pop coming, which is uh, Chinese pop music. It's it's uh, it's it's a battle. So the, the only thing I can say is that uh, musicians who are hoping to become famous... Um, you better write some of the greatest songs ever because that's the only way you're ever going to cut through. Well, um, but but then you have to you have to get noticed. You have to uh, promote yourself. I mean, back in the day, you had a record label that was would do that. Problematic as record labels have been for some artists. Yeah, and the record labels don't really care all that much because what's not known by a lot of people is that the record labels own equity positions in the streamers. So, uh, you know, Spotify has uh, some of their bosses are Universal Music and Spot and uh, and Sony. So they don't really care as long as the profits keep rolling through. And if you uh, this is where we've just uh, left um, financial reporting season for Q3 for the record labels. And they're making more money than they've ever made on streaming. It's just insane how much money they're making. So they're 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 fine. They don't see a need to to change anything. It's uh, the streamers that have, are holding the bag, and it's the listeners that are holding the bag. So you were saying that there are a lot of uh, people who have subscribed to a number of these different music music streaming services that are starting to leave. Um, you know, there's nothing like voting with your money that'll get the attention of anybody who is in business. What are they thinking about doing with regard to just this overpopulation? Well, they, there's, there's something called uh, the cutting of the long tail, which means going into the library and figuring out which songs aren't getting any kind of attention, and therefore, what's the point of having them on our servers? What's the point for them taking up memory? What's the point for them you know, taking up that little bit of electricity to keep the, the file alive? So that may be one. The other may be um, some sort of, and I don't know how you do it, because the way it works right now is you can pay, you can record a song, pay a company 35 bucks and it will upload it on to all the streaming music services. Um, maybe that ease of, of, of distribution has to be throttled back. It's there's, there's, you know, we, we, we used to complain that we were being deprived of, of such great music because the record labels and the record stores and the radio stations would only give us some of what's out there. And, and now here you go, you got everything that's out there not just from today, but from the last 120 years. So uh, how do you even begin to become a, a music fan of something specific? It's, it's really tough. 
It is. Uh, We're speaking with Alan Cross, who is uh, the force behind the Journal of Musical Things, as well as being the host of the Ongoing History of New Music, which I guess takes on a new perspective given our topic today, which is just the overpopulation of uh, music streaming services and product on those services. We're going to take a little break on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. I'm Shona Thompson. We'll be back in a sec. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're in conversation with Alan Cross, who is the host of the Ongoing History of New Music, as well as being the force behind a journal of musical things. And we're talking about the overpopulation of music on streaming services and what may or may not happen because of that. And, you know, in the break, Alan, I was thinking you were talking about how uh, so many of these people are, um, are just listening to a few seconds of one song and then going on to the next, and then a few seconds of a song and going on to the next. And it kind of reminds me of of Netflix. And, um, uh, you know, you you watch like 15 seconds of content, and then for an hour, you're only watching that little bit, and you realize you haven't really seen or heard anything. And instead of Spotify, it's more like Zombify. Um, And... uh, you were suggesting that uh, there's such an overpopulation that about 20% of content has never, ever been heard. And that also makes me wonder how many of these new musicians and bands who have been trying to get noticed but haven't been able to uh, get through any of uh, uh, the services and they haven't been able to break through, how many have just left the business and there's a lot of music that has never been created because there's been this great overpopulation and yet no curation for any of that. It makes you wonder what we've lost in terms of of culture and music. Um, And so I'm just wondering about those bands that that we've lost. I I missed all that. Try me again. (laughs) No problem. I was thinking what you said earlier about the 20% of content that's never been heard, that's been uploaded there. And, you know, you were talking about how so many people just play a few seconds of a song and then they go on to the next and the next and the next. And uh, it reminded me of what a lot of people wind up doing on Netflix. And so it becomes more Zombify than Spotify because you've lost an hour and you haven't really heard anything. That's, that's so true. I mean, one of the things that you've probably sat down with a significant other and said, let's, you know, Netflix and chill. Great. And an hour later, you still haven't decided what the two of you want to watch. Uh, it, it's, it's like that everywhere. With anything that offers such huge choice it's this analysis paralysis what do i want for this what do i feel like what do you feel like i don't know what do you feel like oh we did this before no we haven't i heard this was really good i'd heard it wasn't so good at all so it's it's uh, it's it's an embarrassment of riches that um it threatens to drown a lot of really good creative types simply because they can't get heard in this giant ocean of music that keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper well, then that makes me wonder about the musicians who haven't been able to break through and they just leave the business. Yes, yes. And uh, there are other reasons for a lot of musicians leaving the business. And, and this is one of them. Again, if you can't get traction, if you put your heart and soul into creation, creating something and nobody cares, well, you get discouraged and maybe you go off and try something else. Um, so you're suggesting that they're going to possibly remove some of the, uh, the lesser heard tracks. Um, are we going to be seeing fewer streaming services down the road? Oh, that's two good questions. Uh, removing songs is, would be a very dicey thing. That is something that's only been suggested. 
Nobody has said that they're actually going to do it. And as for there being too many streaming services, yeah, I think there probably are. Uh, and, and I think that we will see at some point in the next 10 years some serious consolidation. And we, we have to remember that it's, it's not just the English language ones or the ones that we hear about the most, like Spotify and Apple Music and Amazon and YouTube and Deezer and Tidal. There are streaming services in other parts of the world that deal with uh, Indian music, that deal with Arab music, that deal with Chinese music, and they all have the same sort of situations. Uh, at, at some point, is there going to be one giant or two giant streaming music services uh, that, that can somehow manage to become profitable? That, see, there's the other problem, too, is that the more, uh, the more revenue that you have coming in as a streamer, the same amount of revenue has to, the, the same amount of expenses goes out. So you, you, revenue and expenses rise in lockstep. So there's no way for you to um, find synergies, to find efficiencies, to increase your margins because of the way the record labels and the publishers have negotiated their deals, their licensing deals with the streamers. Now, is there something that other streaming services, and I'm thinking about platforms that have movies and, and series, uh, is this something that they're starting to pay attention to? I know Netflix and Amazon, they curate themselves, they drop content, um, well, with Netflix, practically on a monthly basis. But is this something that they're going to start paying attention to as well? Well, here's, here's something to look at. Uh, Netflix is a standalone. All they do is stream. Amazon is a giant empire who can underscore or underwrite anything they want to do and not really worry about it. Same thing with Apple. Apple can... You know, I don't think they even break out Apple Music as a line item when they give their, uh, you know, financial reports. Compare that to Spotify, which is just a streamer. So uh, we have a very, we don't have a very clear view is exa- of, of how much these, uh, these, these services are costing and how much they're making, if anything. Um, yeah, the proliferation of content is something that I think a lot of people... Um, are going to have to think a little bit more about. Do people have multiple music services, music streaming services? Uh, yeah, they do. I mean, uh, I do, but I'm a bad bad example. I think I have four <laughs> um, because, I listen, this is my job. I have to see how all these things work. But um, there, there are. There are people that, for example, like Spotify on their desktop but like Apple Music on their phones and vice versa. So... Oh, you can't even do. Can you do Apple Music on your desktop? Yeah, you can. Um, it's it's uh, you know the, the 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 competition is extraordinarily fierce between these two. It comes down to to it's everybody's got the same songs. It comes down to the user interface. Do I like the look of Spotify? Do I like the search function? Do I like how the mobile app looks and operates better than any of the other services? Well, then I'm going to go with that because they all cost the same. Yeah, but what's easier and free? Is radio. Let us do the curation for there, you. There you go. We come <laughs> back to it again. Absolutely, I am on your side. <laughs> we might be biased. Alan, thank you as always for your time and your insights. It's really appreciated. You're welcome. Uh, Alan Cross is the creator, the man behind the Journal of Musical Things, and also the host of the Ongoing History of New Music. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.